scripture reading will be in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30. Before we get there, though, let's, uh, I want to hit back on the verses Andrew read earlier. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I think that's a similar picture of what Paul is setting up for us in Philippians here. When he's talking about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. He's setting up this picture of God working in me, and he's so much working in me, he's transforming my life that he works through me. And that, that others will be blessed, that others will be loved because of him in me. I think that's a different religion that we than we hear, and it's a different gospel. We hear in the world today, we usually hear, what can I do for myself? Get your own. Get it while the getting is good. Make everything that you can make for me. This church is about me. What can this church give me? I think that's Jesus and Paul here both talking about how can I serve? How can I love others? So if you're able, please stand in honor of God's word. Let's read Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious. So receive him and the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that was complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Dearly fathers, Andrew's coming up here to preach your word to us in a minute. Just open our eyes to your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. 
Lord, I, I pray that you just place a desire, a burning desire to, to learn how to love one another. But we know that, that you are love. So the only way that we can truly love is to truly know you and for you to truly be in us. And we know that, that you will work out what you work in. So God, lead us through your scripture today and lead us through your week. Show us the people that, that, that need your love. Use us to be servants. Use us to spread your gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll keep them open there to uh, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to walk through the rest of this chapter together this morning as we continue in this message series that we've uh, called Gospel Joy. What we're talking about in these days is the fact that the gospel... The good news of, of Jesus Christ's death and burial and resurrection and the gospel should necessarily produce in those who receive it joy. It's good news. That's what the word gospel means. And, and we are wired in such a way as people created in the image of God that when we receive good news, it produces in us a joy that we can't keep to ourselves. So a new baby's born to your family and you post it on Facebook and your team wins the ball game and you're all over Twitter and you get a promotion at work and you're wanting to tell everybody that will listen. Uh, she, you pop the question and she says yes and you don't keep that to yourself, right? Because what we do with good news is we share it not because we have to, but because we want to. And that's how the gospel it's supposed to work in our lives. It's meant to produce a joy that is proclaimed to others. And here in Philippians 2 today, we're going to continue in that vein. And what we've been seeing through this book of Philippians is that there are a variety of different links between the gospel and the joy that it produces. There are a variety of different ways in which the gospel produces joy in us. And, and so we've talked about how we find joy in proclaiming the gospel. We, we've talked about how we find joy in, in partnering with others in gospel ministry. And today, we're going to talk about this particular link of the joy of persevering in the gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul loves the word perseverance. Sometimes he uses the word endurance, but it, he loves the picture of, of running this race that's not a short sprint, but a marathon. He loves the picture of fighting these battles that are not just little skirmishes, but, but a lifelong war that's fought for the glory of God and, and the good of his people. He, he loves these long-term images. But for so many of us, we experience more of a short-term kind of faith. We'll come back to that idea, but I want to talk to you this morning about the joy of, of persevering in the gospel. Here's the truth that's going to kind of guide us today. What we're going to find is that the gospel joy is found in this perseverance we're going to see in a variety of different ways. What we're going to see, I'm going to give you the outline this morning. First, we're going to see four instructions that are given that relate to perseverance. And then we're going to see two illustrations of perseverance that are given. And then we're going to see one pathway to joy. Okay, so let me go over that again. We're going to talk about Four instructions related to perseverance, then, then two illustrations of perseverance, and then one pathway to joy. So with that being said, let's look for a moment this morning at that first paragraph, verses 12 through 18. We see four instructions regarding perseverance. There are four commands given in these first couple of paragraphs, and this is one of those weeks, you all know I make this error quite often. As I began uh, preparing this message this week, I got to about Wednesday and I realized this would make two really good sermons. Unfortunately, you're going to get them in one this morning, and so you're probably going to get one halfway good sermon out of what should have been two really good sermons, but there is a whole sermon in verses 12 and 13 here that I'm going to try to give you in about the next 10 minutes. There's some powerful things being said here. But you'll notice he starts there with the word therefore. As another word, Paul, Paul loves the word therefore. And what he, 
The way he uses therefore, whenever you see this word, you ought to always ask, what is that therefore, therefore? Okay, it's a good question to ask as you're reading through the scriptures. You see that word, it's a key word. And what it means here is Paul is referencing what he just said at the beginning of chapter 2. If you were here last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about the example of Christ in his joyful humility, submitting himself to the cross, becoming a servant of mankind when he deserved to be sovereign over mankind, seeking not to grasp his divinity, but to lay aside the rights to exercise that divinity so that he could rescue us from sin and death. And he took joy in that, as we'll come back to today. So the example of Jesus is the first, first 11 verses of chapter 2. And then we begin in verse 12 with this therefore, which is saying, based upon Christ's example, upon his joyful, humble service, here's some instructions for you, church. Therefore, my beloved, I love the fact that, the, that Paul calls the church of Philippi the beloved. Church, we need to be reminded you are the beloved. Amen. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, this was a good, solid, God-honoring, Christ-exalting church. As you've always obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, like when I was with you, which he had been with him on two separate occasions previously, but much more now in my absence. Paul's writing from a jail cell in Rome here. He is, fast, he is fashioned, fastened to two Roman centurions day and night as he writes this letter. So now, much more in my absence. Here's the command, first command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now we talked about how in the book of Philippians there's a number of these, uh, what Matt Chandler calls coffee cup verses. Uh, I would call them t-shirt verses. They're verses that are good enough that you want to put them on something and put them on display. But what, what we tend to do with these verses, like Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Uh, Philippians 1.21, which says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, when we look at Philippians 2.5, which says, have the same mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. We love to take those coffee cup verses and rip them out of their context and use them however we want to. To make them our little mottos, our little themes. What we need to be reminded of is that, that in their context, they are so much more powerful. So here's another one here. How many of you have heard before this verse that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? That's another one of those verses. If you're familiar with Philippians, you've probably heard that verse somewhere along the way. But this, is, this verse has been so misinterpreted over the years. And I, and I want to help to correct some of that. Because maybe some of you this morning, you've heard that verse taught in a way that's very unhelpful. Here's the way it's often taught. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. So there's a, there's a working out and a working in. You see that? That's in the scriptures there. But what some have done is they've said, okay, so what Paul's trying to say is, in this life with Christ, in our discipleship, in our walk with Him, in our growth in the Lord, there's a part that we're responsible for, the working out of our own salvation, and there's a part that God's responsible for, the working in us. That's in the next verse. And so if we take those two things together, the working out and the working in, we put them together and it'll work. That sounds good, right? That sounds like the right answer. You do your part, God does his part, you put those two parts together and it'll work, right? I don't hear any amens this morning. But that's a popular version of Christianity today. You do your part, God will do his part, you put those two parts together and it'll work. The only problem is that's not what Paul is saying, that's not what the scriptures are teaching. What the scriptures are teaching is this. There's, there's two different words at play here. And originally, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And the word work out and the word work in in the Greek are two radically different words. So it's not God does his part, you do your part, put those together, it'll work. The problem is that won't work. Here's the reason. You won't come through on your end. How do I know that? Because I never have once come through on my end of that bargain. The covenant with God is not you do your part, God will do his part, put them together and it'll work. That's not it. The covenant with God, you look back to what God did with Abraham in that early covenant with the, with the, the father of the Israelite people known as Abraham. It was all God. It was all God. Abraham was sleeping while the covenant was being made. 
God was enacting a covenant that was going to be all on Him. And every covenant, every promise of God since then has been founded firmly upon the work of God. So it's not, if you bought into a Christianity that was your work plus God's work equals it works, you're probably frustrated. And I think some of you in this room are shaking your head going, yeah, maybe that's why it's not working out too well for me. Because I bought into a slightly, I mean, maybe not even slightly, a very wrong gospel. So let me show you what Paul is saying. Two words here, work in, work out. Let's start with work out because that's where Paul starts. It's a beautiful word here. To work out your salvation. That word in the Greek is a word that was used in the mines in Paul's day. Those that worked in the mines in Paul's day. If the foreman at the mine told you to go into a particular shaft of the mine and to work out that section of the mine, here's what he was saying. I want you to go into that section of the mine and work it out. And what I mean by that is, I want you to get out everything you can get there. So this is a gold mine. I want you to go in there and you're going to get every last little nugget of gold out of that mine. I want you to exhaust it, get, get all the resources. That's what it means to work out. It means to get out all the resources that are there to strip that thing clean. Now take that for a moment think about it. What Paul is trying to put before the church at Philippi and before us today is this idea. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's, here's a mental picture. Use your God-given imagination for a minute and enter with me into this gold mine. We're going to put on uh, our spelunkers' helmets. We're going to take our pickaxe. And we're going to go down into the mine together this morning. Paul is inviting the church to see that what God has done in our salvation is He has invited you into a gold mine, into a treasure trove. He's invited you to work out your salvation. But don't get the wrong idea. Don't go to that place where it's your work plus God's work equals it'll work. Because that won't work. What He's encouraging us in is this. To recognize that this working out of your salvation is God saying, Hey, why don't you come into my gold mine? Why don't you come into my gold mine and here's the deal. If you come in to my gold mine, whatever you find, you can keep. And folks, that's an awfully good deal. If there was a man that owned a literal gold mine today, and he were to extend you the offer that this afternoon you could enter into the mine that was full of gold, and whatever you mined, you could keep. How many would you? How many of you would go, you know what, I'm kind of busy this afternoon. I've got a little too much gold laying around. I'm really just going to pass on that offer. None of us would, right? You'd be hopping in the car, you'd be going to the gold mine, you'd be coming home with your pockets full and whatever else you could feel, right? That's what Paul is saying to the church. He's saying, church, because of what Christ has done for you, first 11 verses, because of what he did for you at the cross, because of his humble sacrifice for you, because he became, became obedient to death on the cross for you, because he rescued you from sin and death and the grave. Now, God didn't stop there. Based upon the work of Christ, God is inviting you day by day into the gold mine of His grace. And what He's calling you to do is not just to enter in just a few feet and, and find a little nugget and then retreat. That's how so many of us practice our Christianity. Like God is inviting us into the gold mine of His grace and we go to the very mouth of that cave and we go, you know, maybe I'll just go in just a little ways. I grab the first nugget that I can see and dude, I'm out of there. That's enough for today, right? And then the next day, maybe we'll go in just a few inches deeper. From the first thing we can see and we're out of there. When what he's calling us to is to go down deep. Working at our salvation means working in such a way, going after God in such a way, seeking after him in such a way that we desire to exhaust the gold mine. Here's the trick, though. You'll never exhaust this gold mine. It's the glorious riches of God in Christ Jesus. You will go into that mind day after day after day, and you will come out full every time. You'll find that His riches of glory are inexhaustible. You say you got all that out of one word. Yeah, folks, this is the gold mine. 
This is the gold mine. You say, well, I read the word and it just seems like dead words on a page to me. Let me say this to you from my own experience. And please don't hear this critically. When this becomes dead words on a page to me, it's because there's something wrong in my heart, not something wrong with his word. And there will be days. I'm going to tell you from my own experience as your pastor, there will be days that you will read it and felt like you walked away with no gold nuggets. But then there'll be that one day. I will never forget the day in my life when Isaiah 42 came alive and three little words stood out to a young boy who needed to hear the words, do not fear. Folks, those words changed my life. A fearful 16-year-old boy that God was calling into the ministry that wanted to find a cubicle job where he wouldn't have to have FaceTime with people. That's, that's funny. It should be funny to you. God has a great sense of humor, by the way. And God said to me in three little words that changed my life, do not fear for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed for I'm your God. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, folks, it's on those days, those days that God changes our lives. When the words leap off the page and you can't help but hear the living God speaking through the living word. And you realize, I've come into the gold mine. And I'm not walking out with a few nuggets today. I'm walking out with gold bars too heavy for me to carry. There is riches and glory here. This is no weak sauce prosperity gospel here. This is the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. And so we look here and we see him saying, go into the mind, but don't forget. Again, this is not your work plus God's work equals it'll work. Who invited you into the mind in the first place? Who owns the riches of glory in the first place? And then you notice what he says in the next verse, unless we get it wrong. For it is who that works in you? It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the first command. I know we spent a long time here, but I wanted you to get this. What he's saying is the first command is to work out what God is working in. Now, I told you the first word is that mining word. Go into the treasure trove and whatever you take, whatever you find, you can take. It's this amazing word that draws us into the riches of God found in his word, found by the spirit, found in his work in our lives. It's this amazing deal. And then the next verse he says, and here's the deal. God is working in you. It's a completely different word. This, this is not the treasure trove word. This is the word from which we get our English word energy. And what it means is this. For God is working in you. God is energizing you for what's happening in the mind. Because here's what happens in the Christian life. And some of you know exactly what I'm getting ready to talk about. You enter into the mind and yet you feel like the only tool you've got on you is a rusty spoon. Anybody been there? Like, like God is bringing you into this place where there ought to be treasures. And you, and you maybe can even see gold in the walls. But all you've got on you is this old rusty spoon. And you're going, I'm never going to get anything out of this with this old rusty spoon. And that's when he says, hold up now. So I'm working in you. I'm energizing you for this labor. It may feel like all you've got is an old rusty spoon. But there's going to come a day when I'm going to sit before you a jackhammer. And you're going to mine like crazy. You say, well, all I feel like is a rusty spoon right now. It's okay. Hang in there. The same God who's called you to work out the mind, to try to strip clean what you could never strip clean, is the same God who is working in you to accomplish the work. You see, and that's, that's what takes us where we need to go this morning in this passage of Scripture. I love the way Eugene Peterson put it. He said, what we need is a long obedience in the same direction. We need just a long obedience in the same direction because what we're good at, if you're like me, we are good at short spurts. We're, we're really good at short spurts. We're not so good at the marathon. We're really good with walking the mouth of the cave and pick up some nuggets. We're not real good with go deep, stay a long time, and walk out with your pockets full. We're, we're not good with that. And he says we need a long obedience in the same direction. This is the idea of perseverance. This is the idea of endurance. Because for so many of us, and I've resided in this place far too long in my life, for so many of us, it's the short stints, it's the short spurts, it's the, it's the sprints of life 
and we seem to do all right, but then when it comes to the marathon, when things are hard, we get easily discouraged. And that's when he takes us to the next place. Look at verse 14. This verse would change our lives. Look what he says. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Man, we could dwell in here for a long time, couldn't we? Let's just, let's just imagine. We're not going to grumble about grumbling this morning. I want to imagine this positively. Imagine how differently your home would be if you lived according to Philippians 2.14. Some mamas in the room are going, that would be really sweet. <laughs> Nobody complained about my cooking. Nobody complained that I shrunk their favorite shirt. Nobody complained just because they want to complain. How different... Would your workplace be if we lived according to Philippians 2.14? Man, I'd actually want to get up and go to work in the morning. How different would the church be? Think about it for a minute, folks. As we sit here in this place, and remember, Paul is writing here to one of his favorite churches, the church at Philippi, a church that he had founded as the first church in all of Europe. Amazing things had taken place there. He had seen revival break out in Europe because he entered into Philippi one day and saw a little prayer gathering of women, brought them the gospel, and revival broke out on the spot. He had seen major things happen in Philippi, and he's writing them to them here saying, do everything without grumbling or questioning, without grumbling or complaining without murmuring, without all the things that were so normal to our human existence. One pastor looked at this and took it as a challenge. He challenged his church to 90 days without any complaints. Now, I'm not going to even lay that out for us this morning, though. I do wonder. I kind of wonder, what would I even do? With the law? I mean, what, what, there's so much time that we spend in the midst of the church with, with grumbling and complaining. And it's always been that way, folks. It's nothing new. This is why we need this verse. You can go back to the Old Testament. And so what God does in the Old Testament book of Exodus is his people, the people of Israel had been in captivity for 400 years. They had been slaves to the world power of Egypt for 400 years. And God sends a guy named Moses and his brother Aaron to rescue the people from the clutches of the Egyptians and to lead them into freedom. They're not even days outside of Egypt having seen God enact plagues, turning water to blood, killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. All kind of craziness has gone on for them to be released from Egypt. They're not even days removed, and they're already, the word Bible uses the word murmuring against Moses. The complaint department is already wide open, just days into their journey. They get to the border of the Red Sea, and they're stuck between the Red Sea and the armies of Egypt that are coming to destroy them. Because the Egyptians figured out uh, that we may have let these people go, but that was a bad move. So let's go and destroy them along the way, lest we lose any glory. And so the Egyptians are coming. There's the sea on one side, the Egyptians on the other. Moses takes his rod and sticks it in the water, and the Red Sea parts down the middle. And the people walk through the sea on dry ground, not soggy soil like my yard is right now. I can't mow till probably May this year because it's so wet. No, on dry ground, they walk through the Red Sea. They get to the other side. They look in their rearview mirror. They see the walls of the Red Sea crash onto the Egyptian armies, destroying them. And just a few days later, guess what they're doing? Grumbling. Murmuring against Moses. We don't got anything to eat, Moses. So what does God do? Manna from heaven. Now let me, let me depict manna for you. How many of you like Chick-fil-A? Okay, it's a Christian chicken. You ought to like it if you don't. <laughs> but in the mornings at Chick-fil-A, I've, I've discovered manna. It's these little chicken minis. If you've not had the chicken minis, I mean, put the biscuit to the side, dude. You need the chicken minis. Every Monday, this is our new thing. My wife and our, and our son, our daughters are very jealous, but they're in school. But the, you... We go and they get the two four-packs of the chicken minis, and the bread on the chicken minis is manna. I'm just telling you, that's what I imagine now when I think of manna from heaven. Sweet bread is so good. I'm one who loves sweet stuff for breakfast. And so you get your, your, your chicken minis, the bread from heaven. Manna is falling out onto the ground for the people every day. 
They grumble against Moses. What does God do? Manna from heaven. There is chicken mini bread every day. And before long, what are they doing? Grumbling. We don't like this man anymore. We're sick of these chicken minis. We want some meat on these things. So what does God do? God sends quail. I imagine that like the little chicken nugget that's there in the chicken mini, man. It's, it's, it's awesome. And I imagine they're getting chicken minis every day for free from heaven, not the $11.37 that I have to pay for us to go get chicken minis. They're getting these every day, and then what do they do? They murmur. They grumble and they complain. They come to the borders of promised land. That God had been promising since the days of Abraham for over a thousand years. I've been promising them. I mean, come to the borders of the promised land. They're looking over into a land that the Bible describes as one full of flowing with milk and honey, which is that's a sweet land there. And grapes the size of your head. Everything is just awesome. But they see the enemy. They say, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes, and there's no way we'll ever defeat those guys. They doubt the power of their God. They continue in their grumbling, and they get to spend 40 years in the wilderness, which was a punishment. And yet during that 40 years, the Bible says, their clothes never wore out. They never had to go to Kohl's and get new underoos. Their shoes never wore out. As a parent with growing kids who have had to replace shoes twice this school year, it's a good deal. And yet all along the way, what are they doing? Grumbling and complaining. You see, it's always been an issue. But what Paul is saying here to the church, he's saying God is calling us to replace our grumbling with gratitude. To look to this God who is inviting us into the treasure trove, into the gold mine of His grace, and to recognize what God is calling us into, and to set aside our natural, sinful bent of grumbling and complaining. I like what Kent Hughes said. He said, critical complaining spirits, they are the historic bane of the church from Philippi to Peoria to Philadelphia. They are found in every culture, like in the 19th century uh, Scots, who went to church to see if the gospel was preached. They went with a critical spirit. Or today's, I love this term, today's McChurch worshipers who leave their church to go down the street to find a church more to their liking. You see, here's why we grumble and complain, church. Here's, how, here's why I grumble and complain. Because I begin to see my experience in Christ as a consumer experience. I begin to see that what I have in Christ's church is a consumer experience. And if I'm not getting out of it what I think I ought to get out of it, I grumble and complain. If I'm not being fed the way that I think that I need to be fed, if my needs aren't being met the way that I think my needs need to be met, then I grumble and complain. That's what I do. And I don't know if you're partnering with me in this or not. But that's why he says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Because that's our bent. That's what sin produces in us. He's invited you into the gold mine that you can take whatever you find. And you're complaining because you're thirsty. There's a, there's a, a scene in one of the kids' movies that our kids love. And the main characters are trying to dig a water well in this particular scene. And they're digging and they're digging. And the guy at the top of the well is, is, is calling down, hey, have you found any water yet? And the guy at the bottom, I still remember the scene. The guy at the bottom calls up and he says, no, just more diamonds and gold. Isn't that us? Isn't that us? When God doesn't give us exactly what we think we ought to get when we want to get it. Maybe we're searching for water and he's wanting to give us diamonds and gold with which you could buy all the water that you need. We grumble and we complain. We forget that he is working in us. All right, let's fast forward just a little bit here. Verse 16, he goes on to say the next instruction is 
and to work according to the words. So how do we do this work? Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Holding on to the scriptures day in and day out. I mean, once again, you say, you know, I read the Bible and I just, I just don't get anything out of it. It seems like dead words on a page. What you hear this morning, this understanding, uh, this historic understanding that this is the living word of God. There is treasure here to be had. And the reason why we so often don't find the treasure is because for so many of us, we go about two feet into the mine and go, well, no gold here, and we're back out. What we need to do is to go deep and stay a long time. But we've grown up on, and I love that, that term, this, this church Christianity. We've grown up on this place where it, everything is microwave, everything is quick, and if we have to wait, if we spend any time, then we go, I'm out. If we can't rush into the, the end of the mind for a couple of minutes, spend 30 seconds on our knees in prayer and come out completely super Christians, we get frustrated. There is no such thing as microwaved discipleship. Like my dear friend Donnie Sanders who loves to use the smoker, it takes a long time, but it's well worth the wait. So many of us get discouraged. And so we grumble and we complain. And he says, hold fast to this word. Don't let it go. Keep coming back to the word of life. It's like what Peter said. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of life, Jesus. Where else would we go? That should be our mentality. Coming back to this mind day after day to see God. What do you have for me? Show me great and wonderful treasures in your word. May it be more sweet than honey in my mouth. May it be finer than the richest of gold to me. Here's our issue. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes it so well. He says, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. So we get hung up in that place of unending struggle. Some of you know what that's like. You're living in that place right now in your relationship with the Lord. It just seems like an unending struggle. Like you get over one hurdle and there's the next one. You get over one sickness, and there's the next one. You get over one relational issue, and there's the next one. It's just one after this unending struggle. But we, we forget the rest of the picture. We forget the rest of the picture that He has given us every available weapon. That He has set before us the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. That He has given us the fullness of His grace. God is not holding out on you. Some of you are in that place where you feel like God is holding out on you. Well, well, why isn't God coming through in my marriage? Why isn't God coming through with my wayward child? Why isn't God coming through with that job I need? Why isn't God coming through? And what He's inviting you to do in this season is to come and abide near to Him. Sometimes we just need to go and dwell in the darkness of the mind for a while so that he might reveal to us a treasure we would not have otherwise seen. And so we work according to the word. And fourth command, the fourth instruction is this. We replace our remorse with rejoicing. Look at verse 17. He says, so even if, Paul writes, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, what he's saying is, even if my days are over, like he's in the Roman cell, it's either they're going to take off his head or they're going to let him go. That's the two options before him at this point. Now we know historically that they did release him at this point. Later they, they imprisoned him again and he was beheaded. But here he says, even if this is my last days, even if the Romans are going to take off my head because of pro proclaiming Christ, even if this is about to happen, listen to what he says. I am glad and rejoice with you all. That's just insane, right? You are facing capital punishment. He says, even if they're getting ready to take off my head, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
This takes us back to chapter 1 where he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the win-win of the Christian life. He's saying, I don't know which would be better. Like for the Romans to take off my head and I get to go be with Jesus for eternity. Or for me to continue here in ministry with you and see more people come to know Christ. I don't know which one I would prefer. And he says, well, I know going to be with Jesus is far better. But it's a win-win. It's like this back and forth. And he's, he's recognizing what we need to recognize. That there is a win-win in the Christian life. But it's all about our attitude. Because here's what we do. Times get tough. We go into the gold mine on a particular day and all we feel like we have is a rusty spoon. And nothing seems to be going our way. And we come back out of the mine with nothing to show for or so we think. And we get discouraged. And when we get discouraged, we start to complain. We start to complain we start to draw away from the Lord. As we start to draw away from the Lord, then we don't go back into the mind like he's calling us to do. Instead, we retreat into ourselves. Amen. See, that's hard. And it's hard. Here's the truth about complaining. And as, a, as an avid complainer myself, I think I can say this with authority. The truth about complaining is this. Complaining is ultimately one of the most self-centered acts that I can commit. Now, we think we're complaining about other people, about other circumstances. But the reality is, complaining is one of the most self-centered things that I can do, especially as a follower of Jesus Christ who's been rescued from sin and death in the grave. There ought to be overflowing, eternal gratitude that comes out not just out of my lips, but out of a heart that's overflowing with His grace. And yet coming out of these lips are complaints. Complaints against people. Complaints against God. Complaints against circumstances. Complaints even about His glorious church. Because at the heart of every sinful man like myself, there's a complainer. And so what do we do? In Colossians 1, Paul's again weighing out this God's work and our work and how these two fit together. And he says in Colossians chapter 1, Him we proclaim. Man, we would have so much less time for complaining if that was our... If that was our motto, I'm, pro I'm proclaiming Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling. Notice those two words, because so many of us get stuck right there. For this I toil, struggling. God, man, this discipleship thing is hard. This following Jesus thing is hard. If you've gotten to that level, you ought to see that as a grace from God because far too many in our culture have bought into this cheap version of Christianity which says just pray the prayer, walk the aisle, get dunked in the baptistry, live however you want, you got your ticket to heaven punched, you're good to go. No. Discipleship is difficult. Following Jesus is the hardest thing you will ever do. Mark it down. Following him out of that addiction is the hardest thing you will ever do. Following him out of that destructive relationship is the hardest thing you will ever do. Laying aside your wants and your desires for your life in favor of his is the hardest thing you will ever do, but it will be the best thing you ever did. And he goes on, I toil struggling with what? With all his energy, it's the same word. With all his energy that works powerfully within me. He's inviting you into the gold mine. Let me show you two illustrations. We've got four instructions. Two illustrations that reveal perseverance. Two guys that were partners with Paul in gospel ministry. Here's what I see Paul doing here. There's some people that have really wrestled with verses 19 through 30. Because here's what's going on. You see in verses 1 through 11, this example of Jesus. Like we are mountaintop here. This is this amazing picture of Christ who stepped out of heaven, stepped into the earth, lived as a servant, died as a criminal, and then rose from the dead, exalted to the right hand of God, the throne of glory. The one who endured the cross, won the crown. The one who endured the throes of agony is now seated on the throne of glory. That's the first 11 verses. And then from there he says, therefore, enter into the gold mine. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, mountaintop experience. God is inviting you into the riches of his glory because of what Jesus did. So we're mountaintop here in this next paragraph. And then you get here to verse 18. And it seems like, really, Paul? 
like a travel itinerary? So we've just been, look to Jesus, the example of your faith, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, enter into the riches of his glory, enter into the gold mine. And now let me tell you, I'm getting ready to send you two dudes named Paul and Epaphroditus. They're getting ready to journey to you. It's kind of like you see a little travel itinerary here, and it seems very out of place and very like, really? Like that's the follow-up to what you just said? Here's what he's doing. He's trying to set before us two down-to-earth, real-life examples of dudes who were getting it done. Because here's where I often fall short. If I'm looking to the example of Jesus, it doesn't take me very long to realize I don't measure up to that. Anybody with me on that? You look at the example of Jesus and you're going, I just can't measure up to that. And I can get real defeated real quick in that moment. I just don't measure up. By the way, that's the point of the gospel. You don't measure up. That's why you need Jesus. But then I can step farther and I can go, well, you know, Paul says things like, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And so I can look to a guy like the Apostle Paul, and here's what I still find. I don't measure up. I, I didn't turn the world on its head as a missionary of the gospel. I wasn't continuing to write half the New Testament as I'm chained between two Roman centurions. I'm not this super Christian that I see here with the Apostle Paul. And so what Paul does in gracing the church and in instructing us is he gives us two regular, everyday kind of guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Because we can look to Jesus and we go, man, I don't measure up. And we can look at the super Christians like the Apostle Paul and go, man, I don't measure up. And so what God does in his grace is he lays before us two everyday kind of guys and says, here's some guys who are getting it done, who are working out their salvation, and who are doing it behind the scenes. And so let's look at them. First of all, he talks about Timothy. And he refers to him as his son and his substitute. I love the Apostle Paul's affection for Timothy. Uh, let me show it to you over in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, what Paul did with Timothy a lot, Timothy was a, a more timid character, not, uh, not, didn't have the self-confidence that, that many would think you would need to have for this kind of a role. But what Paul did with Timothy often was this. He would send Timothy into the worst of churches to help them with their issues. 1 Corinthians was written to the worst of all churches. It's so wonderful that we're Corinth Baptist Church. No one would ever, having read the New Testament, pick this name. This is the worst of all churches. And, and Paul sent Timothy right into the fray of a church that was rejoicing in their own tolerance of a nasty sexual affair in their midst. And Paul sends Timothy right into the fray of this mess. And here's what he says. He says, I'm writing these things to you, church. This church, that's a mess. I'm, I did not write these things to you to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you, but to admonish you, to encourage you, to spur you on as my beloved children. Even in their mess, Paul was demonstrating his love for the church of Corinth. For though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Notice these family relationships. I urge you then be imitators of me. And again we go, but wait a minute. Apostle Paul's way up here. I can't measure up. And that's what he says. That's why I sent you Timothy. Be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy. This down-to-earth, regular, everyday dude. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Why? To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You see the affection there? I'm sending you my son, the faith, this one that I've raised up, that I've mentored, that I've discipled in Christ. I'm sending you my man, Timothy, to help you in your mess. Church, every one of us in this room, we need a Timothy in our lives. We need somebody who's going to come alongside us, not as a super Christian with the C on their chest, not somebody who's just going to preach down to us in the midst of our mess, but somebody who's going to come alongside us and show us the ways of Christ. If you're walking with Jesus today and you've been in that place very long, God has positioned you alongside believers like that. 
I'm here today because of a man named Curtis Griffiths. I'm here today because of a man named Leonard Hornsby. You don't know these men. But I know them in the way they've impacted my life. And I could go on and on with the list of men that God has brought alongside me, invested in me, when I definitely didn't deserve it. And so he says, Timothy, my son, and also my substitute. So here's what God used Timothy to do. He used Timothy to come into these places where things were a mess and to be a substitute for the Apostle Paul because Apostle Paul couldn't often get to the places where they were a mess because a lot of times he's in jail. That's what's happening here in the book of Philippians. I'm chained between two Roman centurions, and so I'm going to send you Timothy. So I'm going to send you Epaphroditus. And again, please don't see these two guys as like the bar is way up here and you can't reach it. God is trying to show you these are regular, everyday guys who are getting it done. Why? Because they were working out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God was working in them. They were entering into the gold mine every day, coming away with treasures that they were sharing with others. They were getting it done as regular, everyday folks. This ought to be the common Christian experience. But instead, the common Christian experience is verse 14, grumbling and complaining because we forget what he's given to us. Timothy did not forget. And he was other-centered. And he was serving the Apostle Paul and his churches. He was giving it himself. But then he talks about Epaphroditus. This is the only place where we read about Epaphroditus. Timothy is like in nearly every one of Paul's letters. He's mentioned at some point. He was Paul's right-hand man. But Epaphroditus is only mentioned here. This is the only place you'll find any mention of Epaphroditus. And yet, what we find with this brother, and notice he refers to him as a brother, I've said sibling and soldier here. He refers to him as, as a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, somebody who's getting it done. But what had he done? What had happened with Epaphroditus was he was the one that God had used that had been sent out by the church at Philippi to bring the offering that they had taken up for the Apostle Paul. In those days, prison wasn't three square meals a day in cable TV. Paul is chained hand and foot to two Roman centurions night and day, and it's all at his own expense. He's going to provide for his own needs in the midst of that. And so the church at Philippi had taken up an offering, but they needed someone to take the offering to Paul. An 800-mile journey, by the way. Put that in perspective. That's here to New York City. By foot and by boat, mostly. That's a lot of months on the road to take this simple offering to the Apostle Paul in Rome to provide for his needs. And Epaphroditus signed up for the task. But along the way, as we see here, Epaphroditus got sick. And in those days, if you got sick, oftentimes if you were sick and at death's door, you didn't come back. Just like in many countries today where people die from the common cold and from things that we would just take a pill for. In Paul's day, you get sick and you're at death's door and you're crossing an overdue. Not many come back from that place of being sick unto death as is talked about here. But Epaphroditus did by the grace of God, as it says here, he was delivered from death. And Paul said, I'm rejoicing in that too because man, I'd have been really sad if Epaphroditus had passed on. Because his ministry, his behind the scenes ministry has been so powerful. And I love, I love how Paul is setting before us the example of these two guys Regular, everyday dudes. No titles behind their name. No degrees attached to their person. No row of trophies on their shelf. Just regular, everyday men of God who were getting it done because they were just persevering in what God had given them to do. So Timothy, worst of all churches, get in there, dude. Help those people clean up that mess. Yeah, I'll do that. Epaphroditus, man, we need somebody to take this offering to the Apostle Paul. He's in prison in Rome. It's going to be an 800-mile journey. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be difficult. Epaphroditus, yeah, I'll do that. 
You see, it's this perseverance, it's this endurance, it's those who step up and just step by step walk through the things that God places in front of them that make the difference. I love this illustration that Fred Crowder gave. He said, you know, for so many of us, like, we want to drop the big check in God's lap. We want to do something grand and glorious for God. We want, we want to sign a million dollars on the line and give ourselves to God. Just one big lump sum. He said, here's what God really wants you to do. He wants you to take that million dollar check and he wants you to go to the bank and he wants you to cash that out for quarters. And then he wants you to spend two or three quarters every day serving other people in Jesus' name. You see, that's where it gets hard. Because, man, we want to drop the big check. We want to do the great thing for God. We want to be that next Billy Graham, that next Apostle Paul who is, who is getting it done and doing these grand and glorious things for God. And, and that's not necessarily a wrong attitude. It just falls short of the path that God always takes us. Where he's saying, keep your million dollar check. Go cash that sucker out and just spend a couple quarters a day serving other people. And maybe one day, maybe one day there will be a place for you to do something grand and glorious for me. But guess who's going to be exalted in my kingdom? Remember what Jesus said? Guess who's going to be exalted in my kingdom? The least among you. The guy who was just spending a few quarters every day serving others. The guy who was cutting his neighbor's grass. The, the guy who was, who was serving in an unknown way. That's the one that's going to be glorified in my kingdom. And this is what he's calling us to. Epaphroditus was this great example of Romans 5. It's more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's that perseverance there. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's the treasure trove again, by the way. Because of the treasure trove, like you can endure suffering. Because you know that suffering is producing in you the character of Christ. And that character being produced in you that you're now more loving than you used to be. That you have more peace with God than you used to have. That you now have that joy unexplainable even when things aren't going your way. That those being, things being produced in you. That eternal weight of glory being produced in you. That's what enables you to persevere and to endure on those days when you go into the mind and you don't seem to come away with anything. And so what is the one way to joy? I'm going to leave you with a couple of things this morning. Kind of wrapping this all together. We've, again, this would have been two great sermons. It'll be one halfway good sermon as we finish up this morning. The one way to joy is described here in these verses. You say, what is it? What, what, what's the secret here? What are the ten steps that I need uh, to follow through to have this joy that you're talking about? It's a whole lot more simple than that. And so here's the secret. The one way to joy that's described here is it comes through sacrificial service. See, man, I don't really like that. Like, I want to find joy in my name on the marquee. Jesus says, find joy in putting my name on that marquee. Yeah, I, I want to find joy in all my circumstances lining up just how I've planned since I was little. And Jesus says, you'll find real joy when you hand those circumstances over to me. And they're not going to line up the way that you wanted them to, by the way. You say, I, I want to find joy in others fulfilling my needs and serving me. And Jesus said, no, I came... Not to be served, but to serve. And that's what I'm calling you to as well. One way of joy that we see here in, in, in Timothy, in Epaphroditus, in the Apostle Paul, in Jesus Christ. These examples set before us as we see the call to joy is a call of sacrificial service. The call of Christ is a call to come and to die to yourself. The call is one that will produce joy, lasting, abiding, eternal joy. But it won't come in the way that our sin-soaked hearts so want it to come. 
Notice he said in that video, I love that line. I would never have found where God was really working until I went to the margins. In the same way, I'm encouraging you. Go deep in the mind this week. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and no one else is looking. No one else is, is measuring their Christian experience based upon you. Go and open this word and see what God has for you that day. But you see, going deep in the mind means that I don't only look into his word and go, oh, that's really nice. Thank you, God, for that little, little nugget of wisdom. But then I begin to take that nugget of wisdom and I begin to put it into practice. And I begin to take us where Matt took us earlier. I begin to love others in a way that I couldn't love them before because now God's working in me. I begin to not only look for joy in my job, I begin to bring joy to my job because God is working in me. I begin to not only pray that God will bring the gospel to my lost co-workers, I begin to bring the gospel to my lost co-workers because God is working in me. Do you see it? Joy is found in this sacrificial service as we do where we, and we found ourselves last week, Hebrews 12, as we're looking to Jesus. This is the secret. See, it's too simple. Yes, but it's the most difficult thing you'll ever do. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So you take up your cross daily and follow him. He despised the shame and said he took up that joy and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The path to the crown necessarily goes through the cross. Will you set your eyes on him and say, yes, Lord. To your will and to your way, yes, Lord, I trust you. I will obey. Yes, I will serve. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, pray for us today as we have this closing song. And as we consider what it will mean for us to lay our lives down as that offering that this song speaks about. As we consider what it will mean for us to take up that role of a sacrificial servant, a self-sacrificing servant in our homes this week. As we consider what it will mean for us to become a sacrificial servant in our workplace this week. As we consider what it would mean for us to be a sacrificial servant in our school this week. As we consider what it would mean for us to sacrificially serve our enemies this week. Those who despise us this week. Those who look down upon us and say all kinds of evil about us because of our love for Jesus this week. God, would you fire in us this gospel joy? Would you lead us in to those deep minds this week and work in us, work out in us what you are working into us? Would you replace our grumbling with gratitude and our remorse with rejoicing? Would you lead us to cling firmly to your word this week, not just to read it, but to live it? Take us into the treasure trove this week and bring us out in such a way that we have a radical impact on this community. this our prayer in Jesus name Amen Church I just want to leave you with one final word this morning I know for so many you are in that place of just discouragement grumbling and complaining seems to be the, the first response because that just seems to be what's coming out <coughs> I want to leave you with this one thought today that all the things we've been talking about today, this working out your salvation with fear and trembling, this holding fast to the word of God, this, this setting aside grumbling for gratitude and, and remorse for rejoicing, 
all of those things, none of them were you meant to do on your own. Many of you in this room, you need to hear that. You say, well, I know I got Jesus. Yes, and that's primary. But attached to that is the body of Christ. This was written to the church at Philippi, to a collective body. And the emphasis here that I want to leave you with is this. You were not meant to walk this Christian life on your own. I know we live in this individualistic, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps culture. The Bible is calling you to something greater. You say, well, I don't want to be dependent upon anyone. Then you'll never come to Jesus by faith. You'll never trust Him to do in you what you can ever do for yourself. You need Christ and you need His church. And if you are walking through what may seem like the valley of the shadow of death right now in your life, discouragement, complaints, and gripings on every side. Here's my challenge to you. First of all, look to Jesus like we've already talked about. But then second, I'm going to challenge you. Look around and find another brother, find another brother or sister in Christ, find a Timothy, find an Epaphroditus. You look at Romans chapter 16, you see Paul listing 30 folks that he had linked arms with saying, we've been doing this deal together. I can guarantee you if the Apostle Paul needed partners in the gospel, you do too. So stop trying to do it yourself. That's probably why you're discouraged, because you're going about it the wrong way. So link arms with some other believers. If you need help in that regard, that's why we're here. We'd like to help you. With that being said, let's pray and we'll be dismissed today. Father God. I pray for us this week. I pray that the very things we've talked about, these four instructions would become not just law for us. We don't need any more laws in our lives. That They would become life for us. That this working out of our salvation would produce that rejoicing, that joy. That it, that it would produce all the fruit of the Spirit in us. That in the, in the moments of our discouragement, when we feel like we're entering into that mine shaft with just some rusty old spoon, that we would see that we're not alone. Not only that you are with us, Lord, and we rejoice in that, but also that you have called others in the body of Christ to enter into the mine shaft with us. For those that are living out this Lone Ranger Christianity... And trying to pull themselves up by their own spiritual bootstraps. God, I pray strongly in this moment that you would frustrate them so much in that effort that they could not help but turn to other brothers and sisters for help and support. First and foremost, Lord, we need you. And along with that, we need one another. And may we be able to say, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. A hearty amen to that. As we ask in Jesus' name. God bless you. Hope to see you next week.